Growing up, my dad was pretty strict. I had a difficult time understanding why he was so hard on us and why he didn't allow us to do certain things that our friends got to do. It wasn't until I had my own children years later that I began to understand why he was so protective of his daughters. He probably never knew it at the time, but he was showing us what James 4 is teaching us today. In the beginning of the chapter, James is warning us that anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy with God. It reminds me that God wants us to be in the world, but not of the world. I'm sure you've heard that saying before. So how do we overcome that temptation of becoming like the world? James is telling us that even today, we can overcome that same temptation by submitting to God. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. When we submit to God, we're surrendering our lives to his will, not our own. He doesn't demand for us to submit because he's a tyrant in heaven, but because he is a loving, gracious, and merciful father who knows what is best for us. Like our earthly fathers, our heavenly father wants to protect us from the evil of this world, even when we don't always understand it. So as Dwight L. Moody puts it, let God have your life. He can do more with it than you can. It's great to see you all here this morning. Dads, happy Father's Day. Uh, glad that you've joined us. Those of you who are wor worshiping with us on SOCC.TV, welcome. Glad you've joined us as well. We're in this series, Relevant Faith, which is a study of James. You should be aware of that at this point in time. And today we've come to the topic in chapter 4 about being submissive to God. Now that word, submissive, doesn't go well with us. Uh, it's sort of like oil and water. We don't mix well with the concept of submission. Uh, maybe that's our culture. Uh, my generation grew up being taught to work hard, to uh, stand on your own two feet. I mean, that's the American way. We Americans don't do well with kings and rulers. After all, our forefathers fought a revolution for, well, that very freedom to be away from a king and a monarch. The preamble to our Constitution opens with these words, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union. We the people. There it is. Not the king, not the potentate, not the ruler. We, the people. We're not good at submission because it sounds like we have to obey someone. But I want you to know that submission is a very vital part of our Christian walk. And that's what James is addressing here. John Piper wrote this. He said, the lordship of Christ in reality, is something that is not discovered and yielded to once but thousands of times. This is an ongoing struggle with us. It's, it is yieldedness to his lordship that is at stake every time we are tempted to sin. Every day. When we face temptation, will we yield or will we submit to the lordship of Christ? One of the many beautiful facets of baptism is its submissive nature. We cannot baptize ourselves. We can only submit to the person who is doing it. But we enter the water as an act or a pledge of allegiance and submission. And whenever we do that, I, I 
tell the folks who are going to be baptized, I said, you're going to hold my wrist and I'm going to hold your wrist and my left hand will be back between your shoulder blades. I literally have your back on this. Go down in the water, you come back up out of the water. I've never had in all my years of ministry anybody say, no, 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 I'm not going to do it that way. You stand there, say whatever you need to say, that's fine. But I'm going down on my own and I'm coming up on my own. I couldn't baptize somebody like that. That wouldn't be baptism. And, and I'm afraid that I, I would fear, do they understand the lordship of Jesus Christ? Are, are we really willing to make him king of our lives? Because his lordship is at the very foundation of the moment of baptism as well as our lives. In our confession of faith, when we say, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, my Lord and my Savior. Every phrase of that, every breath of that, every descriptive term of that speaks to our need for submission to his Lordship. Uh, Son of God uh, speaks of God in the flesh. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. It means the anointed one. It means the one that God had promised from the very beginning of time that would come to save us. Lord and Savior, well, the Savior part we certainly want. But Lord means ruler, the one whose sovereignty is over my life. So when we make that statement, everything about it points to him as our king and us to the ones who should be submissive. I've read that when the early Christians were baptized as they came up out of the water, they would shout, Jesus is Lord. I kind of like that. It speaks to the submission. I, he's my Lord, and I will submit to him. William Barker writes about an incident that happened in the early days of the Ford Motor Company in Detroit. One of the Ford machinists became a Christian and was baptized. Shortly after his conversion, he began to feel a conviction and decided to make some restitution about uh, parts that he had stolen and tools that he would stolen from the Ford Company. So the following morning, he brought everything back to his immediate supervisor, explaining how he had just been baptized and how he wanted to make things right. His boss was understandably caught off guard, and so he sent this cable to Henry Ford, who was out of the country, and asked how he should handle the situation. Henry Ford is supposed to have replied immediately, make a dam in the Detroit River and baptize the entire city. You see, that's the transforming power of Jesus Christ. When he gets a hold of our lives, when we submit to him, it changes our actions. So let us act like we've got some sense this morning and submit to Jesus Christ. Now let's consider what James has to say about the whole subject of submission here. First thing he says is check your motives. In chapter 4, verse 1, this is what we read. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James addresses the issue of our motivation. He says, do you know why you quarrel and fight? It's because your battles grow out of bad motives. In the classic novel, The Count of Monte Cristo, a lifelong friendship between two men is destroyed because one of the guys wants the woman who has pledged to be married to his best friend. 
And because he cannot let go of his selfishness, because he cannot be motivated to do the right thing, the book is filled with sadness, deceit, brutality, revenge, and murder. You see, motivation sparks our actions, and that writes the chapter of our lives. We need to check our motives. The word translated here, desires, is the word hedone, from which we get our English word hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure as life's supreme goal. The Christian constantly battles between the physical and the spiritual. And James says the reason we don't have is because we don't ask. We, if, we, if we need something, we should ask of God, who is the giver of every perfect gift, and he'll give it to us. But the second problem is this. When we do ask, we ask with the wrong motives. And that is that we want it for our pleasure. Now, God's not opposed to us having nice things. As a matter of fact, I'm going to, I'm going to suggest that in this room this morning, God has blessed us with, with more than what we can possibly need in life and, and loves to see us enjoy the things of this world. But when our motive is things come first, God has a problem with that. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the apostle Paul writes, he says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be made rich in every way. Are you ready for this? So that you can be generous on every occasion. You understand what God is saying? He said, I'm happy to bless you, but I want you to turn around and be a blessing to others. I don't want you just to hoard it all to your, yourself. Here then is the contrast in motives. The worldly motive for gain is to enjoy as much as possible. The godly motive for gain is to share as much as possible. It's not a forced sharing. This is not some kind of socialism. This is compassion at work. Sharing because we want to share, because we want to make a difference in other people's lives. And, and, and I think we often overlook the fact that the motive in God's eyes is as important as the gift itself. In that chapter we call the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this is what we read in verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor, even if I surrender my body to the flames, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Do you understand what, what, what Paul is saying? He said, if I give everything away, but I don't do it out of the right motive, it doesn't count. God looks at the motivation of our hearts and what's going on there. Uh, guys, I, I think we could make so much greater difference if we would lead with the courage to be motivated to do the right thing. If we would do the right thing from the right motive, I think it would transform our culture. Because when, when we have the right motive in our business life, in our social life, in our personal hobby life, in our family life, uh, it, it, it would just make a difference in our culture. And I say this to, to the men because, men, we really have to set the pattern. And part of the pattern that I see that's slipping away from us here in America is, is the fault of the, of the fathers. Let, let me give you an example. 42%, 42% of American children live without their father in the home. 42%. That's about 20 million children, which is roughly the population of Florida. That's, that's overwhelming. And the impact of that lack of influence of, of fatherhood is going to impact generations for years to come. 
Now, I'm always amazed at the lessons that God gives us from his creation. God teaches us all kinds of good things from his creation. And if you want a good example of the sacrifice of fatherhood, you need to look at Antarctica. I know that's not the place you were thinking to look. But, but there really is an inspirational story that comes from the emperor penguin. When the female penguin produces an egg, it is the males that begin the process of care. The female leaves to spend the winter in the open sea, and for the next 65 days, that single egg will rest on the dad's feet covered by a fold of skin that will keep that egg at, 60, uh, at, at 100 degrees while the temperature outside in the Antarctic falls to 30 degrees below zero. The males huddle together with only their body fat and their feathers to sustain the warm, and they kind of shift around and move about so that they can share the warmth as they go. 65 days later, the, the eggs hatch, the females return with food, and in that time, the father penguin has lost 45% of his weight. That's a sacrifice. And it's a sacrifice made to ensure the survival of the next generation. Imagine what, our, imagine what our society could become if every father started living out such sacrificial godly motives. Yes, it takes courage to do the right thing from the right motives, but the rewards, huh, the rewards are out of this world. So let's act like we've got some sense and submit to the Lord. Then James talks about checking our relationships. <clears throat> check your motives, check your relationships. In chapter 4, verses 4 and following, this is what we read. You adulterous people. Oh, that's pretty strong language. James is right in our face. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So in this next portion, James moves from a contrast between worldly and godly motives to the contrast between worldly and godly relationships. Now let, let me see if we can understand something about the way James uses world and worldly. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of attached to this place. I kind of like this world. I mean, what's there not to like about God's world? Man, from the beauty of the snow-capped mountain peaks to the angry waves crashing upon the rocky coast to the gentle spires of, of Bryce Canyon to being able to walk on a cool, frosty night by the moonlight alone. I mean, what, what's not like to like about that? We've already seen a, an, an incredible example from the emperor penguin, which grows out of God's creation. God loves his creation and, as a matter of fact, has given us the responsibility to be caretakers of his creation. So what's up with James when he says, if you love the world, you can't love God? It's because James isn't using the world in that context. James uses the word world or worldly to denote the difference between secular humanism and God. The philosophies of this world that stand in opposition to the philosophies of our father. You see, the humanist declares that there is nothing higher than the human brain. If that's true, we're in, we're in real trouble. You know, we really are. 
that we can solve all of our own problems and solve all of our social ills and, and we can handle all of our challenges without any kind of divine help. Humanity is basically good and if we come together, why, there's nothing that we can't solve. It is a non-religious approach to life. And James looks at that and he says, you can't have both. You can't have a relationship with God and a relationship with the philosophies of this world that are secular, non-religious, that don't recognize God. It's akin to keeping a mistress and having a loving, faithful relationship to one's life. You can't do it. Thus, James' choice of words is to be in love with the world is to commit spiritual adultery with God. He holds nothing back. He is right there pulling us to this knowledge. He echoes what his brother Jesus taught after all. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Or as James puts it, you cannot love both God and the world. He warns us about the world's enticements that would draw us back away from God into the world. That, well, Satan knows where there's a longing in our heart. It wants to pull us away from that which is the only thing that matters, our relationship with the Father. There's some vivid pictures in Scripture. One of those comes out of the Old Testament book of Genesis. The angel of the Lord has just come to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to rescue Lot and his family, his wife and his two daughters. And the angel says, flee the cities. There is a, there is a coming disaster on the wickedness of these cities. Flee to the mountains. Get away from here and do not look back. You know the story, I suspect, that as they're fleeing the city and the Holocaust descends upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife stops and she turns and looks back. And the Bible said she becomes a pillar of salt. Maybe that's a pile of salt. Some people think it means that she was just instantly vaporized as if like in an atomic attack. I, I don't know which one it is. It doesn't really matter. I think she turned into a pillar of salt and minerals that was being created there because that's what Scripture tells us. Nevertheless, the, the end of the story is true. She, she perished. And you say, man, that's pretty harsh, God. I mean, you know, who wouldn't be curious to look behind them and see what's happening when you hear all the destruction and all the things that are going? Who wouldn't want to look back? That's not the look. This is not a look about being curious as to what's happening behind. This is the look of longing. Oh, I don't want to go. I, I, I love that place more than I love following God. That's what's going on here. And there's a danger that when that happens in our lives, we'll be turned into something else other than what God wants us to be. In the New Testament, James, or Paul writes three times about a man enemy by the name of Demas. In the book of Colossians and in the book of Philemon, he speaks of Demas as a fellow worker and one who sends greetings to the church. We see him in the company of Luke and other stalwart disciples. But in Paul's last letter, the, letter, the last letter he writes before he is executed, he writes to Timothy, and in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, it says, Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Some of the saddest statement in, in, in Scripture. He loved this world more, and he's gone. 
Only God provides a meaningful relationship and purpose in this life, folks. Only God holds the answers to our problems and challenges. Only God can offer mercy, grace, and forgiveness to cover our sins. Only God gives us a hope that will last and endure long after our time in this world. So why is it, if God can only do those things for us, that we struggle with our loyalty to God? Why is it that we, we hedge our bets, that we say, yes, God, I want to follow you, but I'm going to leave the back door open just a little bit in case I decide I want to escape this commitment? <laughs> kind of reminds me of the, of the young lady who went to a lot of effort and expense to get pictures taken of herself for her fiance. And this is when the, the pictures turned out really nice. And this is what she wrote on the back. She said, my dearest Jim, I love you with all my heart. I love you more and more every day. I'm yours for all eternity. Love forever, Susan. P.S. If we ever break up, I want this picture back. <laughs> is, is that what? Love forever really means? And, but don't we do that with God? Oh, Lord, I'm going to serve you and follow you forever. But we've left the back door cracked open just in case we need an escape. Shut the door. Lock the door. Throw away the key. Be submissive to Jesus Christ. British theologian C.S. Lewis described a relationship with God 50 years ago like this. More than 50 years ago. A car is made to run on petrol, gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. You, and you understand what he's saying? Apart from God, you can't have the things that you really need and want. To put it in a far less sophistical way, philosophical way, if you could have a homemade deep dish apple pie with a scoop of ice cream on it, why would you settle for a hostess Twinkie? <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. A Twinkie is, well, okay. But cream-filled yellow sponge cake just cannot compare to homemade apple pie. Why settle for what the world offers when the God of the universe wants to be Father? in your life. So let's act like we've got some sense and submit to the Lord. Last thing, check your choices. Verses seven and following. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Notice that God never forces us to the right choice. He just gives us the choices and says, you choose. And James continues to teach us about the submission by pairing up these words. Notice the first pair. Resist the devil and come near to God. So resist, come near. It's your choice. Resist is a military word that means to stand against. You barricade your mind and your heart against what the enemy can, can throw at you. Paul in the book of Ephesians reminds us who that enemy is. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms, Ephesians 6. Folks, there are forces that you and I cannot see. There are forces who are at war with God 
And our souls are the spoils of the battle. That's why we must resist. Adrian Rogers wrote, never give the devil a ride. He will always want to drive. That's true. And when you travel with the enemy, he plans the trip and he picks the destination. And I'm here to tell you, you don't want to end up at his destination. So resist. And that's not easy because Satan always attacks us on the blind side. Just at the moment when you think you've got this temptation thing whipped. Coming from the blind side is the temptation that just knocks the props out from under us. So resist. Stand firm. Dig in your heels. Don't let down your guard. This was seen on a bumper sticker. Try Jesus. If you don't like him, the devil will always take you back. <laughs> He's true. It's true. He's, he's a very, he has a very gener generous return policy. You don't even need the receipt if you want to go back to him. But I'm telling you, choose wisely. Choose wisely. Let's act like we got some sense and submit to the Lord. The second pair is wash and purify. If you want to humble yourself before God, then get your actions and your mind focused on God. Clean up your act, outwardly and inwardly. You see, it is both. You can't say, well, my heart is right with God, so it doesn't really matter what I do on the outside. Oh, yes, it does. Remember what James said? He said, if your faith doesn't impact your actions, then is it really faith? If you can't, if you can't live it, then just saying it isn't going to make any difference. Folks, if you can compartmentalize your spiritual Christian ethics and allow your ethics to only impact what you do on Sunday when you come here, if your spiritual ethics don't impact your business ethics and they don't impact your personal ethics or your home ethics or your hobby ethics, then I'm here to tell you they aren't ethics at all. Your spiritual ethics should guide everything in your life here James talks about being double-minded, which really means two souls. It describes somebody with a double allegiance, and God has no double agents in his employ. So choose wisely. Let's act like we've got some sense and submit to the Lord. The third pair, grieve and change. God's not calling us to give up smiles and laughter. That's not what he wants. I mean, God, after all, that's a gift from God. But he does want us to maintain a sense of sorrow for what we've done wrong. We dare not try to justify our sin as the right choice. God calls us to humbly repent, a change that reflects our submission to him. Because I'm here to tell you, the only true relationship that matters is the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the bottom line. So let's act like we've got some sins and submit to the Lord. The world will never treat you fairly, folks. It will cheer you today, but it will jeer you tomorrow. Bill Buckner played 22 seasons in Major League Baseball, stepped up to the plate 9,397 times, had a career batting average of 289, drove in over 1,200 runs, had 174 home runs, and create and earned a nearly perfect fielding percentage of 991. Nonetheless, he is remembered for his one error in game six of the 1986 World Series when a roll, slow rolling grounder slipped between his legs. The White Sox were playing the Mets. Bill played for the White, uh, for the, I'm sorry, the Red Sox were playing the Mets. Bill played for the Red Sox. The Mets went on to win in game seven. The error was a contributing factor to that 
loss. Despite his great record, that one error remained Buckner's defining mark. You see, that's the way the world remembers him. And even when he died, May 27th of this year, from dementia, that's still the way the world was remembering him. Here's Bill Buckner. Oh, yeah, he's the guy that let the ball slip through his legs, who missed the ball in the sixth game of the World Series, 1986. Life is never fair. The world chooses to define us by our mistakes, but God never does. Thankfully, Bill Buckner knew that. His wife, Jody, said, Our hearts are broken, but we are at peace, knowing he is in the arms of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Bill Buckner didn't miss the ball when it came to his spiritual choices. He knew there was one relationship that matters more than anything else in this world. Submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.